love sushi, I love Japan. My social life has hit the fan. All I have is anime, so I guess there's just one thing to say. Guru Gamesh, my life's a mess. My figure collection is racking up debt. My wife has left, my house is gone. Time to get my butt to Sakura Con. Guru Gamesh. Welcome to the Grugamesh podcast, the only in one place for anime discussion on the internet. Don't question that. And welcome to the world of tomorrow that was yesterday. Oh, today on the Grugamesh podcast, we are talking about Fritz Lang's 1927 incredible epic, a masterpiece, one of the most influential films ever made. Journey to the West. Yes, that exact one. Uh, we're discussing Metropolis. Except it's not actually Lang's film. We're discussing the 2000, 2001? Yes. Yes, 2001 adaptation of Tezuka, Osamu Tezuka's manga version of Metropolis. Yeah, it was quite weird to see all of this Metropolis-type uh, imagery with Astro Boy-like character designs, and then it's just Smash Mouth playing in the background. <laughs> oh, you wish. You fucking yeah, wish, just, you boy. Know, they, they got they got all the 2001 hits, Less Than Jake, yep. uh, The Butthole Surfers. Yeah. Um, Green Day. Wheatus. That version of Kids in America that plays in the Digimon movie. Ah, wonderful. So, Metropolis is a very fascinating animated movie. And it's a fascinating animated movie because it kind of pushes the boundaries of what people are willing to accept when it comes to anime. Yeah, here's the thing. If you you took... A baby child of the internet today. If you took someone who was like, I stand Jewish Kaizen or whatever it's called. I, I, I love, uh, uh, fucking what's this guy? Baku Deku Forever yeah, or whatever. Um, they're, they're Tumblr ships. The Cheening Man. Yes. If he was British, he'd be, he'd be called Bush Trimmer Boy. Oh my, that's, that's a bit dirty. <laughs> but, you know, you'd look at something like this. And it would seem to have a lot more common ancestry from the outset with American animation. Yeah. Now, we know, because we're fucking losers and know too much about this medium, that this is a very anime-esque oh, film. Oh, it is. It's very anime. So, we're gonna make our standard silly jokes in this episode, but I need to just get this off my chest. This might be one of the greatest films I've ever seen. One of the greatest animated films for sure. Yeah. It's ridiculously good in every aspect and everything it attempts, and it's wonderful and eclectic, and man, did this make no money. No, it's one of those it's one of those rare anime films that seems to have a lot more cachet with traditional film, film people, film people love this film. Yes, and the anime community was aware of it. I'm sure it's not as celebrated as I feel like it no, should be. No, it isn't. Which is a, a, a fucking travesty. It is. It's a fucking shame. So this movie is so goddamn perfect. Let's give you a little bit of background. This film is an adaptation of a short manga that was written by Osamu Tezuka, the grandfather of those funny books with the black and white men and the spiky boys. Yeah, and the and he helped create anime, sort of, except he didn't. It's complicated. It's very complicated. We'll not go into that too deeply. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. Very, very apt noise, Vic. Uh, glad to have you on the podcast. You always contribute your A game. <laughs> <laughs> Blah. 
So, Metropolis was released in the 1950s by Osama Tezuka. It's one of his earliest works coming shortly after New Treasure Island, which was sort of his major debut. Did that one have Muppets in it? Uh, no, but it had extremely racist caricatures. Then I am not interested. Oh. So, right, the interesting thing about the Metropolis adaptation is that it was something that he was kind of semi-commissioned to work on. But he decided to draw the manga, and the legend goes that he decided to draw the manga after coming across a screenshot or shot of the city of from Fritz Lang's Metropolis in a magazine. It wasn't the city. It was a shot of, I believe, a female robot. Oh, uh, okay. And th that was the thing that inspired it. And that is all the contact he had with the movie. So, and, and he went and drew a, what, 150 odd page manga? 160 page book! Yeah. It, and he constructed the entire thing in six months! To be That's fair, the shot of the Machine Maria is like one of the most iconic yes. pieces of sci fi. I don't blame it. Also, you're just supposed to say blur this episode. You're fired. <laughs> you broke your code, Vikram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, just so you guys know, in the preamble to the show, we we were joking that the whole thing I was going to do this entire episode was just say blah, a random points during the thing to add as input. And these two were just going to carry the show. That was, that was on a bland noise. That was... The kayfabe is dead and it will never be revived. <laughs> so Metropolis was, was just quite successful when the manga first came out. From what Very you said. successful. Yeah. It's it was um it was he, like even Tezuka himself was like so he'd already made New Treasure Island. He was already like a a, a bit of a rock star in yeah. terms of what little of the manga world existed. He it was, was very he was very up and coming. Yeah, absolutely. And even the response, uh, the public's response to Metropolis surprised him. It seemed to have been very popular. So that's a good thing. And I just want to let everyone know because it shocked me when I learned this. Um, and I've talked to the guys about this already. He wrote the, this as part of a trilogy of epic science fiction uh, novels, uh, Tankaban, uh, 160 page books. He did each of these, it seems to be in the space of maybe a year to six months each. And he did this all while he was in med school, getting his degree. It's a terrifying work ethic, I've got to be honest. It's fucking frightening. Yeah, it's mental. Step up your game, Vic. You just do pharmacy. <laughs> uh, I do way more than just that, but yeah, no, actually, compared to me, he still like crushes me into the dirt. I think Tezuka's output crushes a lot of people into the dirt. And now is uh, the worst aspect of the manga industry, because no one's allowed to see their families. Well, no one is allowed to sleep. Yeah, arguably his insane work ethic doomed the futures of hundreds of yes. young people. And uh, just as an extra aside, the popularity of the manga, the Metropolis manga, was so high that it actually seems to have been the inspiration for so many other mangaka yes. to become mangaka in itself. Which, again, kind of surprising. Which, one of those mangaka may have something to do with this film we're discussing. May indeed. So let's jump forward a couple of decades to... I think it's in the mid-70s, Tezuka begins setting up his animation studio, Mushi Productions. Mm -hmm. Actually, it might be mid-60s, either way. Tezuka sets up his anime studio, Mushi Productions, which is very famous, and again, similar to how Tezuka standard a lot of the work standards of the manga industry, Mushi Production established a lot of the work standards of the anime industry. And they were producing quite a lot of works, a lot of experimental stuff, a lot of adaptations of Tezuka's work. And Metropolis was put to him as a work that should be adapted. Yeah. 
adapted. 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 There we go. Thank you. Adapted. I did. I'm trying my best. Uh, work to be adapted into anime. And he was like, no, I want to work on it. It's not a work that I'm particularly proud of. Was it Rintaro himself that approached Hezuka during this period? Or? I'm not sure, to be honest. All I know is that he was approached with the idea for it and kind of, kind of flubbed yeah. off to decide to focus on all this stuff. All right, this is where we jump forward to the late 90s, early 2000s, when we start to see the production of work on Metropolis. And the production of this film was driven largely by two figures. Rintaro, who is one of the most famous and significant anime directors who worked on a bevy of significant works, especially for the 1970s. Contributed to the very popular genre, Sad Women in Space. Exactly. He directed works such as the TV series of Galaxy Express 39 and the film adaptations, worked on Captain Harlock as a director, and jumped around and did a lot of different works. Um, and he, he started out working in mushy production on Tezuka shows, working on things like the original run of Astro Boy. And the other person who's involved in this is one Katsuhiro Otomo, perhaps one of the most, again, also perhaps one of the most significant and famous manga artists ever. What did he do? Akira. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I thought that was a bit. Did you genuinely not know? No, 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 because we talked about it earlier. <laughs> okay. Akira, so Otomo is most famous for his landmark anime manga, anime manga, anime and manga, Akira. Um, has worked on a couple of Volo projects as well. Yeah, but that episode's going to kill us one day. Oh, it will. Uh, I'm not on that one. <laughs> Otomo, and Otomo worked as the writer from Metropolis and Rintaro worked as the director. Yes. And they came together to produce what, we, as we've said, is one of the most fascinating animated films I've seen in terms of the level of quality, its production value. The And you and I had not seen it in... Like possibly a decade. Oh, plus. I, I've I've not seen it in about a decade, and that's yeah. honestly part of the reason why I suggest we discuss it is because I wanted to go back to it. I'd never seen it ever. There you go. I wanted to go back to it because I felt like it's it's worth a reassessment. It's worth people talking about it and talking about how fucking good it is within the anime community. It's it's an important work, and we've got things to say about it. Yeah. Um. No. The th the thing is, I I approach this again like I do with often these bullshit things. I approach it a bit more like a film. And the thing that fucking stunned me is that I couldn't. It was too good. It was so good. Um. So the great thing about the film is, outside of well, there are so many different aspects, but the one I'll pick on right now is the design, the background art is done extremely yes. lavishly. It's phenomenal. It looks beautiful. And then the animated art is also done really well. There is a quality difference, but unlike most late 2000s anime that didn't get the fucking memo, the <laughs> difference in the quality isn't so astounding that like you can't just point it out. Uh, uh, like You can't just look at it like... So many other things like you can't you can say obviously that's the animated art there and yeah, that's just yeah. the background art. Oh look, that's animated differently. Ta-da! It, it all blends together beautifully. Exactly. Um, and there are tons of little touches as well that I'd expect in like a higher budget movie that are present here, but on an animation level. Yeah, this year. was this was a very interesting period if we look at animation because this was a five year production cycle, which for a Japanese animated is film very long. It's pretty long. Usually, they're completed within a year and a half, yes. maybe two years, and as well as the amount of fucking money going yeah, into this so movie. 
whilst this is this this these figures would probably be sneezed at by someone like a Disney or a Pixar yeah. or even a DreamWorks, but Japan, this was I think it still might be one of the most expensive oh, animated is. films ever commissioned. It is one billion five hundred million yen. I don't know what that means because I don't do weeb dollars. Can you fucking <laughs> translate that for That's us? That's not fake. I, I don't speak the hieroglyph language. Okay. <laughs> so roughly at the time, that would have been $21 million. Nowadays, it's close to like 10. Okay. Um, do you wait. need the queen's currency? Because I have that here as well. No, but what I want to know is how does that compare to Akira, which was in the 80s? So Akira was one billion yen, yeah. but that was closer to the likes of ten million Ben dollars. Yeah. So we're talking Akira style budget, like at least if not more. more than Akira. Even Akira was Akira. eight to ten something. I don't know if it with inflation, but yeah, it's like definitely at least Akira class. No, so yeah, this was a big animation budget until uh, until the release of Steam Boy a couple of years later, which also, funnily enough, uh, was involved with our. Uh, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo was involved with it. And equally made no money. Yes. Uh, this was the most expensive anime film ever produced up until that point. Like, and it shows... And budget does not mean quality, but budget plus extreme talent... Equals... And, and the time yes. to spend on that work equals very good quality animation. And So, getting back to my initial point, this was a very interesting time for animation in general. Yep. Like, Japan had completely jumped the ship in terms of television, in terms of, you know, doing stuff on hand and then scanning it in and coloring it digitally. This is the era where the industry starts to move away from hand-drawn style animation and almost exclusively to digital. But the weird thing is, is that America sees this ship, say, that's cool, and then they dive on another bigger ship called Pixar Studios. Yes. Like, free DCG movies start to absolutely dominate with the likes yeah. of Toy Story, Monsters, etc. and so forth. But the tragedy is at this point, America had produced some amazing films that oh, yeah. resemble this. Atlantis, The Lost Empire, Treasure Planet, El Dorado, uh, Iron Giant... Like, that sort of 2D animated film using 3D for mechanical imagery is very in line with Metropolis. Metropolis does feel oh, yeah, it, in that pantheon. Like, I got a lot of Atlantis The Lost Empire vibes from this. Uh, here's the thing, though. I think Metropolis is better than all those movies. I mean, I'd love all of them, but you're not wrong. No, okay, I can't so, here's, so here's why I specifically, and I think the magic, the secret source, which isn't so secret, that sort of makes this work is Tezuka's work itself. Yes. Because his weird, strange style with the giant noses and the round characters. And big hands. I forget those big grabby hands. Oh, did, can we talk about the forearms? Uh, why everyone has Popeye forearms? Like, uh, like how no one ever has an ankle. Everyone just has like a rectangle for a foot, for a lower leg as well. Just like. Uh, Tezuka has, Tezuka's got a very distinct. Stink style. Yeah, which itself was, sort of, what, was it descended from Disney cartoons? Yes and no. Okay. He, he watched Bambi over 80 fucking times. Okay. And this is when Netflix was happening. You had to actually go find a projector. Yes. This motherfucker clearly loved yeah. his shit. Um, but when I'm talking about this, what I'm saying is he, and Gabe helped me dissect this a bit, so appreciation to oh, you. Oh, thank you. Um, but his round, soft sort of characters mixed with the extremely detailed, almost gothic oh, yeah. backgrounds 
created this weird, perfect situation where they were maxing, they were, they were balancing like happiness, like sweet, cute things and a childish, a childishness with the edge and darkness of an almost adult thing on a fucking razor edge. It was beautifully balanced. They follow that edge fucking perfectly. Tezuka's influence on this film posthumously is enormous. His art style is, when it has the budget given to it, is very, very well done in animation. His simple character designs, the thick lines, the movement in those characters is just stunning. Like all of the direct animation, like all of the characters are done with 2D animation and they are so fluid. They are so beautifully done. I was going to say the, the, the city itself is sort of a combination of 1920s Europe, Western Europe, hints of New York, yep, hints, yep. but with also hints of modern Japan with yep. the, the pastel coloring. So you're actually close because Tezuka spoke about it himself. I believe he said, um, I'll pull up what he, the note I had down exactly. Uh, so again, going off my head here now, but I believe he actually based it off what he understood to be current day, that, well, the, what was then Chicago. Yeah. Um, okay, that that tracks. That really does yeah, track. Yeah, so that's what I understand of it, at least. And that's what he was going off there. So it kind of works with what you guys were saying there before. And the other thing, which is, again, a bit more Tezuka, and something I alluded to before, was the designs of the designs of every character. Everyone, down to the fucking grunts, the random bullshit people that are just there being security guards. Every single one of them seems to have a distinct enough either hairstyle or style of dress that you can pick them out yep. quick enough, which is more genius from the character designs that Tezuka clearly brought to the table. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the, the, the person who was adapting to Tezuka's style, uh, yeah, the character designer was uh, Yasuhiko Nakura, and his sort of rounding out of paying tribute to this very iconic look of how anime used to be, mm-hmm. it's timeless. Yeah, it is. It, it is undeniably immortal with the way it looks and the way it sort of brings all these different sort of features of Western and Eastern animation all in this big pie. Effectively, yeah, it's a beautiful blend of Tezuka's incredibly sim- simple character designs with his incredibly lavish backgrounds. Yeah. And that's really on display in this film. I was going to say, you and I had the conversation where this film uses a combination of CG mechanical designs yep. in its backgrounds, but also has a lot of to like cell animated human beings, regular robots, et cetera, and so forth. And because of the scale and the usage of camera work, it reminded us of Squaresoft era Final Fantasy yes, games. Yes, it does. And it creates this really, really fantastic and quite unique art style in terms of anime movies. Yeah. It it's really distinct, standout, and fucking beautiful to so look at. For how they did that was, according to members of the CG team, I looked up a little documentary. Um, what it would be is it would be layering. So yeah. they do the animation via analog, then they'd layer one uh, sense of CG animation, then layer another, then layer yeah. sort of coloring and stuff because a lot of it was a mix between analog and digital like according to them one of the most difficult shots was there's a big zoom out shot from the ziggurats the massive sort of imperialist building and it involved making a cg city that they made look cell animated using polygon models 
and they matched the colors of said models with the original cells that they were drawing with. So it makes it look 2D when even it's 3D. And that kind of gives you a demonstration of the amount of work and craftsmanship that went into this movie. Says, this was painstakingly difficult. I wouldn't want that job. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this documentary is people saying, wow, Jesus, that film was hard to make. Yeah, fucking was. Now, the other aspect of this film that I think is really one of the driving forces of it that I think really helps and alleviates that lightheartedness to Tezuka's style is Otomo's script. What is it to be human? I, I actually, oh God, I don't know how I feel about because like I love a good script, I love a good story, and I love a good plot and dialogue. And I don't know if I'm going to agree with you here because some of the ways that like character motivations were revealed were very on the nose. But go ahead. I think that the script is the script is not the strongest aspect of the movie. Yep. The strongest aspect of the movie, as we've discussed, is its beautiful animation world design. We should probably give us an synopsis at some point, but please continue. Yes. So the, the story of this movie follows a young boy called Kenichi, who is traveling to Metropolis with his uncle, following a detective lead. They're searching for an international criminal. Yes. And as they're searching through the city, they get drawn into the socio-political machinations of Metropolis. Revolutions, working class disputes, riots. Yep, alongside um, the lives of machines, the oppression that they suffer, the progression of technology. The threat of automation, the standard stuff. It's very, it's the problem, it's very locked into that time, yes. right? We would never be able to understand those threats to this day. No. Like, this does not translate at all. However, it's also a very traditional Otomo story. I find a lot of parallels between this and Otomo's most famous work, Akira, especially on the political spectrum. There's a wealthy upper class, there's an extremely downtrodden and poor working class who are understandably quite frustrated about their lot and start to violently react to it. And the class warfare on show in this film is very much a driving force in the background. It, yeah, that's the interesting thing about this. Is it, it, if anything, it's almost an opposite to Akira. Yes. In the sense that Akira is a film adapted from a 2,000-page manga series, so everything has to be cut out. This is adapted from a much shorter work of about 160-ish pages. And in terms, and if anything, it feels like he's kind of making up for shit that wasn't there. Oh, he is. Like, this film is, having read the original manga, it's nowhere near as strong as this film. This film goes very heavy on expanding on the story, and honestly, the story's very different. It seems to take a lot more cues as well from Fritz Lang's film, and not just mm. from Otomo's manga. Otomo's manga? Tezuka's manga. Um, Otomo very much seems to be crafting his own story out of a variety of inspirations and sources. Mm -hmm. And as a part of that, he does a lot of his traditional things he does in a story. Revolution, the question of what it means to be human. Yeah, that scene where Kenichi just turned into a big pile of limbs and organs and then transcended human consciousness, that shit was rad. Oh, yeah, So, yeah, yeah. okay, I know you're memeing, and, like, everyone knows you're memeing. The problem is, is there's a very real allegory to it, like, as an analogous event. In this movie, where at the end, it was, what, Michi? Michi's, the tubes all came down into Michi's body, and then she went all, like, Tima. cyborg. Tima, fuck, sorry. 
Tima, um, Tima's body all went fucking cyborg, and I was like, that's yeah. super Akira. Yes, very Akira. Yeah. The other storyline going on in this film is that of a young girl named Tina, who Kenichi saves from a burning factory and takes her on journey across the city trying to figure out who she is, what she means, and what her purpose is. And it delves into a lot of your traditional philosophical questions you might find in this sort of story. Um, are machines people? Are they conscious? Do they have feelings? What does it mean for the future of humanity as machines become more prevalent and more autonomous? Um, how do humans react to that? How do humans evolve alongside that? A lot of these stories are ex- are explored in a very in a very hands-off yeah. but detailed it way. It very much is a a quick tour, like a weekend visit to, to this yeah. world. Yeah. It, yeah. The storyline is not so much a deeply introspective work in how mm. it is in a lot of ways. Like the revolution happens in the background. The political coup happens yeah. in the background. The political you know, intrigue the- is not the focus of this movie. No. The focus of this movie is Tima and her journey and Kenichi's journey alongside her. The, and don't, don't forget Uncle Shizaku. I would fucking die for Uncle Shizaku. Oh, I love him. He's a great guy. Oh, he's an A-tier mustache. Just the best. When he beats up that weird cock in the bar, that's great. That is actually fucking fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's a great scene. <laughs> I don't use that word often, but there's a character in this in the, in the this saga, which is, he's the most father love me that you can get in oh, anime. Yes. <laughs> I think Rock is one of the more interesting characters in the film. Mm. He is the son, uh, the adopted son, I should say. Uh, no, no, no. I would. I don't even want to say adopted son because that dad made it clear. Like, uh, you are not my son. Fuck off. Exactly, that's where I'm getting to. He is the quote-unquote adopted son of Duke Red, the builder of the Ziggurat, a massive tower that reaches into the heavens above the city of Metropolis. And there is some quite not subtle references to the Tower of Babel in comparison. By not subtle, do you mean they literally tell you the story of the Tower of Babel in one of the scenes? Yes, while they are looking at the ziggurat. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, basically, he's... Uh... He is the... He is, in apparently classic Tezuka fashion, singular-minded in yep. his motivation. And he's got a big bloody nose. He doesn't have a big nose, it's, um... He has a, a fairly normal size nose. Yeah, normal size nose. Duke Red has a big pointy nose. Oh, Duke Red has a fucking uh, giant one. He has a pelican nose. But um, <laughs> you can fucking stab someone with that. He could signal boats with that thing. Yeah, I was going to say, if you walk down the street in Manchester with that nose, you'd be fucking tackled by the bobbies. <laughs> All right, we don't need to go too British here. Let's chill out. Um, sorry, you were saying, Gabe. All right, so the other aspect, another aspect of this story focuses on Rock as he desperately seeks the approval of the man he calls Fowler by trying to destroy anything related to machines that could, in his what he sees as in his eyes, as overtaking the authority of his father in his father's right to rule this great city of Metropolis. So, uh, despite the fact, and this is the important asterisk, despite the fact that some of these things are things that his own father has built or commissioned oh, to yes, be built. Naturally. And wants to have happen, and this motherfucker will turn around and be like, "No, father, you should be the only person who lives." That you're, you're I making him sound way too assertive. It should be, "No, father, you should rule this." Look, 
Yeah, you're right. He <laughs> He's such a sniveling little bitch boy. Yes, I'm he sorry. Is. It's true. Listen, uh, I hated him with a passion, and so did Jay. He, in some of the European box art, he's on the cover. Yeah, he is. He is on the cover of the... And it makes him look like the main character. And in a way, he is one of the main protagonists. Yes. Oh, he is. He's one of the main focal points worse. of the movie. Yeah. I just, just, I, he irritated me so it's much. It's kind of like... There is, there's literally a scene where we see his battered corpse, but... Which is That's nice. It's very relieving. He goes on his own terms. I, I, I think he should have just, like... There should have just been, like, a, a little sort of um, Monty Python, um, and now for something completely different, saying, Rock, Rock yeah, defecated yeah. himself to death. So, on a story screen. level, <laughs> I, think, I think on a story level, the reason why he irritates me so much is because when you see characters with their motivations confronted with other people with other motivations, yes. yep. you either see them justify themselves develop their motivation further and hold steady or alter their motivation and incorporate that like human beings tend to do when they enter into a conflict situation and then try and resolve it nope not this motherfucker he does not develop at all he doesn't change he will develop new abilities like the random fucking Mrs. Doubtfire mask he pulls out in the third (laughs) act but he does not develop or change in his motivation in any way shape or form very single minded in his purpose but like I, like, I'm okay with single-mindedness. I'm not okay with, like, conflict, development-free, development-free, constantly running into conflict, single-mindedness. Like, that shit, like, baffles me, especially when the idea of his motivation is to serve someone else, and that person's like, no, fuck off. So all of these stories collide as the film goes on. And to be honest, I'm convinced that a lot of these stories and a lot of these plot lines that are woven together throughout the film are honestly given over more to highlighting Metropolis, the yeah, city. The world itself. Like I said, like I've probably seen the original 1927 Fritz Lang film the most of all of us because oh, I was yeah, forced absolutely. to study it in film. Yeah, there's no denying it's one of the most important science fiction films ever made. And, you know, one of the important aspects of it is the way it depicts its society. Like there are multiple very famous scenes where, you know, workers are trudging along to the factories as if they were robotic. And I think Metropolis, the 2001 anime, the biggest thing it takes advantage of is this is a entirely drawn world. We can go as large scale as we want, and it is endlessly magical in the way it depicts this retrofuturist, which is the key word here, city. And I'm a big fan of retrofuturist fiction. I think in especially nowadays, where we're literally holding fucking Star Trek tricorders in our pockets at all times, it's kind of interesting to see stuff that is steam powered or you know using coal or oil. S- stuff that is an alternative take on how technology yes. might have developed to the point that we're at now, or even further. Well, th- this was funnily enough one of the earliest points of uh, steampunk ever existing. So this is, it makes sense. Like this is one of the first references ever to a like a steampunk world at least in the original manga um so yeah that it makes a lot of sense i'm a big fan of uh retro futurism too uh, but the thing that sorry i just want to talk about the characters more because he irritated me so fucking much everyone else adapts or changes to their environment yeah. and they sort of move with their thing so Tima changes. She doesn't want to go on the throne initially, but because of the emotional topsy turbiness, she yes. ends up going on the throne. That makes sense. And then Skynet happens. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, it's beautiful. We'll talk about that sequence later. But yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the doctor, the sorry, the detective from Japan does the same thing. His motivation change and develop, but he's fucking like everyone else's singularness sort of works. Yes, yeah, so you can you can see a very clear line in their motivations from beginning to the end, even if those motivations change over time. There's good reasons for that change. Yes, there's development, right? It's cool. Not with this motherfucker, and I hate him. I hate him. I want to break his legs with a bat. I've never <laughs> wanted to be so vicious fucking to LG. an animated thing in my life. Fuck this. And it's even worse when I see everyone else is developing around him and he's staying at the same fucking place. What? Oh my God, I hate him. Oh, sorry, ran over, but yeah, like fuck I, that guy. I didn't expect to get a trademark Vikram ran out of this fucking nothing character from Metropolis, but I'm so glad we had this. That was entertaining. God, we haven't had this, this vitriol since Dragon Ball Z filler. Ah, uh, oh, yes. God. But no, um, because we're talking so much about the world, the art director is um, Suichi um, Kurasamori, and he is actually, we don't talk about this role a lot. Okay. Background artists yes. in anime. They, they do so much and get so little you know, recognition because it's a lot of still images. But this guy is a legend in terms of doing background art. I'm going to list some stuff he's done background art in. A few indie films like uh, Ghost in the Shell, nineteen ninety five. You know, a little series called Pat Labor. You know, uh, you know, a, a, a little, you know, moderately successful movie called. Um, uh, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of it. Uh, uh, Castle in the Sky. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, Jinro. So this guy has done, ev- like, so many iconic background pieces. And the art direction in this film is sublime. It is. It is completely on point in every aspect. And we've mentioned the use of CG in this movie before as well. And the CG, by our standards today, it's a bit dated. I I, I don't know, man. I'd put this ahead of some TV anime still airing today. Oh, no, I would agree. (laughs) Like, in terms of anime, it's very well done. But but, but you you can notice. You can notice the fact that CG on its allure rendered more realistic. But once again, because of that sort of PlayStation... Final Fantasy Squaresoft RPG aesthetic. It works. It looks so good. It I works was going to so say, well. I think the thing that makes this work so well is kind of like what I mentioned before with the background art versus yep. the animated art. They actually have blended this 3D animation into the actual 2D animation. So it all sort of fits together nicely. So it means that even if it might be a bit bad or a bit dated in areas, it doesn't like, no, it doesn't, it doesn't take away from I'm, the images that, uh, that come together. So on the that's whole. a very interesting point. Um, in one of the behind the scenes of documentaries I was watching, the team was very sort of um, very reverent about how involved Rintaro himself was in the creation of this world. Like uh, one of the CG effects artists sort of uh, jokingly reminisced that Rintaro would come up to his computer and make notes with like a magic marker <laughs> and they'd have to um, just like use wet wipes to wipe it off after like you know he was very involved with creation and aesthetic of this world and often you know he would always ask why you know why not use cg for this scene why not use analog for this scene and it wasn't about using digital technology or not it was about just getting the images that they wanted to create it was using the right tool for the right shot and uh honestly i think rintaro's direction on this film Fucking stunning. Oh, wait, the, the sheer scale. Like, it's not two hours. This is a tight 90 minutes, yeah. but so much is packed into this dense metropolis. Of a movie that it's kind of fucking stunning. All of these disparate elements, the script that's written by Otomo, the incredible background art, the 
stunning soundtrack of music. It's all- I was gonna say, uh, Toshiyuki Konda is the composer. And he fucking smashes it with this incredible, like, jazzy, upbeat soundtrack that fits with the vibe of the city so beautifully. And Rintaro takes all of these disparate, like, threads yeah. and weaves them together. I, I was gonna say, Ray Charles performs the, um, I Can't Stop Loving You rendition during the final <sighs> climactic scene, and it's perfect like me and vic looked at each other a little bit when it started playing but instantly we we're like no this is the yep. perfect needle yep. drop to this yep. exact sequence no hey i'm a big fan of fallout and that was the, the vibes that it was giving me a world destroyed and uh, do you know what some classic music was playing and it felt especially with the retro futuristic aesthetic just like perfect it was actually perfect that final scene of uh, we're getting very in the proper heavy spoiler territory now, but the final scene, the climax of the movie Which, involves. I'm just going to say right now, might be one of the best climaxes in anime cinematic history. I think it is. It involves the ziggurat, this massive obelisk tower of Babel towering above the city, collapses. Mm. And it collapses in some of the and most stunning beauty you've ever seen. And it's foreshadowed not so subtly by the fact that one of the revolutionaries is talking about how the Tower of Babel was struck down yes. by God, but this it's, time it will not be struck down by God, it will be struck down yes. by man. Well, the, the writing's not subtle. It's not subtle about but this But it's not based all. on subtle material. Like, like you know, Otomo is not a particularly subtle writer. No. And neither was Tezuka. Like, if you read, like, as someone who's read a few, you know, f chapters here to here for the original Astro Boy, yep. it's very sort of, you know, machine writes. Like, he was one of the earliest people to, like, at the same time as Isaac Asimov and stuff yes. like that, to sort of, you know, propagate this idea of, what if machines were people, yo? And hey, it works fucking well. I don't think he said that isn't in the exact vernacular, but I like to think, well, I get you know, the idea. he would. Uh, a lot of, like, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but a lot of this script is very on the nose. Mm. But it does eventually lead to that fucking stunning climax with some beautiful animation. It's you know it's it's here's the thing. This film we we've talked about this sometimes when we've covered stuff like Miyazaki films. Yeah, and intended audience. Yeah, and this film does have a childlike whimsy to it. It focuses on children, focuses on you know adventure, but at the same time. People get shot in the face and beaten to death, and there's a workers' uprising where all the scientists get beaten to death by clubs. And it's yet, part of what I was talking about before when I was saying balancing that childishness, that like innocence quality, with the gritty edginess that like it seems to bring. That it's so uniquely brilliant that I felt like it could have just as easily gone children's TV show as it could have gone the thing. Yes. Like it could have gone like fucking eight directions and it would have all kind of worked all within and it could have done both at the same time and it probably would have been able to make both work. Like, anime compared to a lot of American animation, as we all know, is much less reluctant to dive into those dark, darker aspects of the human soul. Again, as Vic was saying, Metropolis does this on a razor thin fucking line of it's a very lighthearted, joyful, upbeat movie, but it's got this real dark undertone to it, this sense of loss, this sense of melancholy running throughout the entire film. And the climax is one of the most melancholy and beautiful things you'll ever seen. But then it ends on a very light note. It's very upbeat, it's very cheerful, it's very hopeful about what the future might end up bringing for the city. Honestly, I'd say the film's tone was all over the place, but it 
follows so well from the previous aspect and it feels so good throughout the whole film that I don't even feel like that's fair. Like it's more that it just did a guiding tour of all the different tones you can yes. have in a film and it did them all really well. The film's tone is not all over the place in a sense of like, no, oh, it's, it's a mess. It's extremely balanced. It's, a, it's very tightly woven. It's like, yes, the dialogue is a bit clunky and on the nose sometimes, but in terms of plotting, it flows together fucking beautifully. Yeah, I yeah. was going to say, of all the anime studios they could have picked to do this, I mean, I know studio is ultimately just a collaboration yeah. of people, but Madhouse do have a prestige oh, they do. of making incredibly bold, just animated films. Like, speaking of that, when we talk about its impact on the West, it did hit with more film-centric yeah. people. Like, you know, it, it only made about $400 million on outside territories in Japan. Obviously, yeah. you know, we, you know, America knows what Astro Boy is, but not to the degree that they'll no. rush out and see a film of it. But to kind of demonstrate how big this distinction is between the anime fandom and its fans who are mostly film fans. Yes, I mean, there's a difference between, you know, people who just appreciate animation in general. Yes. This film has never been released, in the, in the UK specifically, for instance, this film has never been released by a specifically anime licensor, but it's been released regularly by companies like Sony Pictures. And Eureka Entertainment. Yep. Uh, yes, that's where I was going. It was released by Eureka on their Masters of Cinema line that focuses specifically yeah. on great art house movies. And that's a very apt way of considering it is a spiritual sequel to the original, the original sci-fi art house yep. film. It's a tribute not only to the works of Osamu Tezuka. Despite never seeing it. <laughs> yes. It is also a tribute to Metropolis. Like you could there's lots of things in Metropolis 2001 that I can see as callbacks to the original 1927 oh, film. If Fritz Lang was alive to see this, he would have fucking loved this oh, film. Oh yeah, it's like it's from tiny little things from the way that certain scenes transition by the camera zooming in and out or the screen darkening in certain ways. Unique mechanical designs. Yeah, you, you can see a lot of that running strip back from, from 1927. And I love the fact that they don't stop at the 1927 stuff. Yeah. They really give it almost, um, they blend it more with the futurism ideas. So back then, obviously, not a lot of color in movies. Yeah. But the color in these movies, god damn! I love the warm, embrace of organic colors, like a lot of great rusts, yeah. great usages of there's, blues. But even in the town squares, where they're all just mingling from above, there's pastel pinks and bright yellows and stuff you wouldn't expect in a world like this. There was a checkerboard, somebody was wearing, I can't remember if it was jacket or pants, but they yeah. were in checkerboard clothing, yes. yeah. which is pink and green, and it was like, beautiful! Yes! It worked and there were scenes in like alleyways where rather than make it bathed in a standard color they bathed it and i think it was like a dark green yeah, on a black occasionally teal and, and stuff right but then the thing that was lighting up the uh, lighting up the area wasn't uh, like a blue or a yellow it was red and it was like oh this is some play like the beautiful use of color theory a plus I gotta give that credit to them as well yeah fantastic I loved that one this is just so much fucking artistry on show in this movie. It's kind of stunning all regards. Oh, yeah. No, it's fucking great. I, I just can't recommend the film more, more really. Like, it's so good. No, I can't. If you're looking for that fucking brilliant art house anime movie that's really going to push 
your conception of what anime can look like or what yes. animation can look like. Just don't expect a super complex plot, like a super basic plot, and that's perfect. Yeah, the yeah, plot's fairly straightforward. But it, it, like, the plot doesn't need to be all complex. No, it doesn't. I don't think. Honestly, it's one of those movies. Uh, this is going to sound almost like an insult, but I swear it isn't. It's a movie you can put on mute, but still pay attention completely. And yep. you'd still get like 80% of the Considering what it's based on, I think that's a very apt compliment. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Like, it's beautiful. Like, this is clearly a group of people who know manga very well, who know anime very yep. well. Um, but their plot skills might be something left to be desired. I wouldn't say the plot is bad necessarily. Or it leaves something to be desired. I'd say more the dialogue is something that leaves a bit to be desired in terms of explaining things that are going on and really honing in on like being su- having a good level that's of subtlety true. in the dialogue. I think is something that's this fair. film's lacking. Honestly, I don't think that's that important in the no, grand no, scheme no. of things. I'm not going to deny it. Do you know what? That's fair. That's yeah, fair. The, the plot's um, very serviceable at demonstrating what a fucking beautiful world this is. Like, hell, there was literally um, a Red Rum-esque scene. Um, And when I say Red Rum-esque, what I mean is somebody had written... No, not Red Rum-esque. What is it? Um, No, it is Red Rum. It's the Red Rum scene from The Shining. There's a very similar... I, isn't that. there a fucking um yes there is there is it's the one where team is writing kenichi's name yeah but that's that's like a red rum-esque or maybe it was full metal jacket i'm thinking where they've scratched it all over the walls over and over right but like they've written it all over the walls that should be freaky right that should have been completely unnerving or it could have been kind of cute but no they managed to put it on that razor edge that we talked about before it's it's very cute and endearing, but it's also Clearly unnerving. Unsettled. This is a distressed child. Yes. So you never feel either one way or the other, but you're still engaged, and it's brilliantly done. That's actually an interesting jumping on point. How uh, you know we we watch this in English, and the uh, the the free seiyu, the free Japanese seiyu, originally cast for the roles of Tima, uh, fucking Kenichi and Rock, were newbies. And they, they were relatively new to the industry. And what's interesting is the fact that in Japanese, a lot of them sound very deep. Like, Kenichi is probably a kid who's about 12. Japanese dubby sounds fucking 17. His balls have dropped, <laughs> yes. effectively. Yeah. So I actually think that, you know, I would recommend the English dub. I think the English dub is very, very competent. Yeah. And in some ways, there's some anime that I think lend themselves... The, the world of certain Western anime European lend themselves setting. better to an English dub, yeah. and I think Metropolis is one of those movies. I was going to say, uh, one of my personal favourites, you know, Duke Red is played by a man called Jameson Price, who is the deep voice in everything. And he, uh, all, most of the fucking actors in this film are fucking, they do a fantastic job. They do they a really good brilliantly. job. Yeah, they do a really good job. So, actually, speaking of that, um, in terms of its impact on English-speaking uh, countries, like, you know, it's been on Blu-ray for several years now, uh, interestingly enough, in Germany, uh, but it had to be retitled Robotic Angel, because of course it did. <laughs> of course. But honestly, equally, equally, you know, apt title. But a certain Roger Ebert, when writing for the Chicago Sun-Times, gave Metropolis a four out of four, calling it one of the best animated films he had ever seen. And it was one of the first anime films to be submitted for best animated picture Ah. for the Academy Awards that promptly lost to, let me just look this up, uh, yes. Shrek. Yep, yep. We Get fucked, Hollywood. Oh, we, we could, <laughs> I, I could go off about the Academy Award for animated feature for fucking a while. Donkey, what's it like to be human? 
<laughs> okay, Mr. Myers, get back in your swamp. This 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 montage of a Matrix parody is gonna make you think about the socio-political landscape of the working class. Yo, Shrek, you crazy bitch! <laughs> <laughs> What's all about track impression, actually? Yeah, that, was that, was was sl- that was an okay Eddie Murphy. That was an okay Eddie Murphy. I'm not saying you'll win any awards for it, but that was okay. Well, that's okay because this movie didn't either. <laughs> so the manga did, I think. Wait, actually, it probably I did. I would believe it probably that. Probably did. I. This film is, I would not say that it's an undiscovered classic. No, it's, I, it's, it's gotten its love. But yes. the thing is, it can always use more love. Oh, absolutely. It's not a hidden gem. It's not underloved. It's underappreciated, I think, especially where the more general anime community at large is concerned. Where I think a lot of modern audiences have moved away from figures like Tezuka, Rintaro, and Otomo. Yeah. They're... They're all they're either old or they're dead. Um, they're not working as much as they used to, especially in regards to Otomo and Rintaro. And f- for Rintaro, especially, this is kind of a last hurrah yes. to his career. Because after this, he didn't do anything that was super high profile. No, he did he did a couple of like one-off episodes. He's done some storyboarding. He made a children's CGI film. But I really do see this as kind of the culmination of Rintaro's career. It's going back to his roots, starting out drawing storyboards for Astro Boy in the early 1960s to creating what is arguably one of the most beautiful animated films ever created. It's appropriate that he ends where he starts. Yes. It's a testament to his skill as a director to see a work of this magnitude being built out of a slim 150-page manga that was 50 years old at that time, nearly. nearly. Like, uh, I don't know what higher praise I can heap on this film than that. I think if you have a, like, if you have this idea in your head that, you know, oh, I know what anime is, and, uh, you, you know, you, you'd think of, you know, exaggerated eyes, pointed figures, you know, all the crazy tropes you know anime for, give this a watch, because I think this reminded me, and think I'll close out to, um, the song we talked about before. Yes, a wise decision. The anime ultimately is just a word in Japanese that means animation, and animation can be everything. And I think that can sum us up. So I think you're right. Rate and review us on all your favorite podcasting apps. Uh, follow us on Twitter at GarugamashPod. Uh, email us at Gmail. Did is my Shrek impression good? I think it's a solid four point five out of a certain other number. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so ultimately, gentlemen, thank you for joining me, and, uh, I love sushi. I love Japan. And I love you for staying fun. Of dreams of yesterday